I'll admit that is not the most rousing hymn, but it's a wonderful expression by Isaac Watts of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So we'll consider now, nearly for the last time, second to last sermon, Lord willing, on the book of Hebrews, having taken uh, just a brief break last time. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7, we're still in the concluding exhortations, so entitled the sermon, The Closing Admonitions, Part 2. So as I indicated last time, you really can't view these as just additions at the end, just a few closing admonitions suited to these particular people, but really admonitions which we ought to see as we find the emphasis once more here on the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which flow out of the teaching of the epistle. Remember, he says, those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. And therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Let us pray together. Father, as we uh, near the end of this great epistle, we ask you that we would have a sense here of what it is that you are saying to us the things that we must seek to grasp in our lives and, and especially in the local church as we're gra- uh, grappling with the great truths of the great priesthood of Jesus Christ, but also what it means to hold fast to him and to guard against the dangers of apostasy within that context. Help us, O oh God, to take this word to heart. We humbly pray and may the preaching be instrumental in doing so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting here as we close out the epistle to the Hebrews to notice the emphasis upon church leadership and government, both in verse 7 and verse uh, 17. Those of you who are in the new members class, this actually is a fitting uh, sermon in many ways, given what we just considered, the specific form of uh, the Christian church, the, the government it, involved in the local church. What we find here, though, uh, is, is not so much a sustained emphasis on that theme, but bookends which surround a series of admonitions. Verse 7, remember those who rule over you. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you. And those are the first and the fifth admonitions, but there's actually a second, a third, and a fourth. And as we do this, as we notice this emphasis here, we are left with the question, how does that emphasis here the leadership of the local church fit into the broader argument and appeal of the epistle to the Hebrews, which had to do, as you know, and as we find here stressed again, on the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And our ongoing profession of him. 
Not wavering, he says, I'm recalling earlier arguments in the the epistle, the, the broader appeal, not wavering in unbelief, but holding steadfast to our profession, to him, to the very end. Unlike those apostates we find who adhered for a time but then fell away. Well, here's a point we need to see, beloved. That that the church is essential to all this. And I mean the church in its visible form, the local church. There is no pilgrim who takes his journey alone. And perhaps, you know, I've quoted Pilgrim's Progress quite a bit in the preaching of these sermons. But perhaps, and I wonder whether I'm being unfair to Bunyan. Perhaps you'll say I am. But perhaps we can fault Bunyan's work a little for this. The sense we have as we read Pilgrim's Progress is he's journeying alone, not in the presence of a great company. It's true he meets helpers along the way, but you don't quite get the sense that he's journeying along with the church. The reality is quite different, especially as we find it in this book. We are to strive together, he says, as a Christian community to hold fast and persevere in the faith. In other words, this is not an individual task, but a corporate task. And it is precisely because that is the Christian duty, that we come together. Especially, he says, in the face of the hostility we may face from the world. In fact, one of the cardinal marks of apostasy, the person who began well but then fell away, he didn't go out of the way as we find Christian doing, but he actually reversed course. Christian, I mean, in Pilgrim's Progress, you remember he went out of the way to Mount Sinai, if you were there for the evening sermon a couple weeks ago. The apostate is one who goes back. He turns his back on heaven and Christ. One of the cardinal marks of apostasy against which the epistle warns is that one has fallen away from the church itself. The person he describes in chapter 10 who has gotten uh, into the habit of skipping church, or we could say he's gotten out of the habit of coming to church. Whereas the man who's going to make it all the way to the end of his journey is the man, he says, who has the habit or who is in the habit of gathering with his fellow believers. And all the more as the day is approaching. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, that's just one of many instances where we find the emphasis on the local church. The church is, as you know, an ecclesia. It's a gathering. As we gather together, we are fulfilling our essential task as the church. And so for all the spirituality of this epistle, and I wonder whether there is any epistle or any book in the Bible which has a greater spiritual emphasis than Hebrews, seeing that we have a high priest in heaven, not on earth, and we are meant to deal with him constantly, there is still this needed emphasis on the local church. She is, of course, a spiritual body gathering at Mount Zion, participating in the spiritual worship of heaven itself, if you remember what was said in chapter 12. But let us also see, and obviously so, we recognize this, we're here today, she takes a physical earthly form. Again, what we call the local church. And the reason for this is simple. The reason for her existence and her necessity. And that is simply the fact that we Christians, though we are able now to deal with heaven, are not yet in heaven. We are still pilgrims here. 
And so as pilgrims, there's nothing we need so much as encouragement from our fellow pilgrims. We need to sense that we're not running the race alone. That there are others joining us in this great race whose very presence on the path along with us serves to strengthen and to encourage our faith. And what is more, as we find emphasized here, we also have to realize as pilgrims who are going somewhere that we need guidance and direction. In other words, the emphasis thus far has been on our brother or else on our relation to our great high priest in heaven. But here the emphasis becomes our leaders that we find in the local church who both guide and direct us as we go together to heaven. He reminds us that the church as a body takes on a specific form. It isn't just a gathering of believers. It is that. And as I said, that is her essential function. But as she gathers together, she takes on a specific form. And as a local church, there is church government, oversight, and so forth. There is a presence of leaders, of shepherds, elders, pastors. But as ever, you notice this admonition. This admonition to appreciate fully this aspect of churchly life is set within the context of a broader relationship to our great high priest, as well as our place within the new covenant. As as we find uh, stressed in between the bookends, verses 8 through 16. And so our relationship to our leader, our leaders in the church, is in many ways a reflection of whether we know anything about this. Christ's priesthood and so forth. In other words, all that has been argued thus far. The man who has a clear grasp of this is the man you will find in church. You will find him submitting and obeying his leaders. You may even find that he's one of the leaders since his grasp of the truth has made him fit to teach. But surely we ought to agree that the ideal is that we're all so grounded in the gospel that our relationship to the local church is inevitable. Since the blessings of the new covenant are no longer found in the structures of the old covenant, the nation of Israel, the tabernacle and so forth, but they are found now in the local church. And with this in mind, we find in this passage five exhortations or five admonitions. Chapter 13 is a chapter full of admonitions. Which here as ever are grounded in solid Christian truths. Number one, remember those who rule over you, verse 7. Let me read the whole verse. Who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct or of their lives. Now there's some question as to how to take this verse. Is he speaking about former rulers or present ones? I'll admit to you that it never even occurred to me to ask that question until I opened the commentaries this week. But now I'm persuaded He's actually referring to former rulers, though in verse 17 he's referring to present rulers. It would seem that the emphasis in verse 7 is upon, as I say, the former ones who are now dead. Hence the admonition to remember them. Is it not all too common, beloved, that we forget them? And why? Well, either because we're in such a hurry to get to heaven ourselves that we forget all that lies behind, which isn't altogether bad, 
or far more likely, it is yet, an, yet another sad and worrying sign that we're out of the way. That we've forgotten not only those who taught us, but their very teaching. That we've forgotten the former days in which our faith was purer and more ready to be tested and tried, as he said in chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured such a great struggle with sufferings, uh, and, and so on. There is a tendency, I'm saying, all too common in the Christian life to forget. To lose a sense of how it was we began when we first set out on our Christian journey. And thus to lose a sense of where it is we're going. And equally, to then begin to try to to live the Christian life on our own without the help of others. Which is exactly what we didn't do at first. We did so in the presence of teachers who taught us the gospel and who set us going on our way. Whenever I tell the story of my conversion, I always tell the story of the man who told me the gospel. His name was Dave. He was a camp counselor at a uh, sailing camp in North Carolina. I didn't just become a Christian. I didn't start my journey as a pilgrim on my own. I did so in the presence of a teacher. And so you see, I can't remember him without remembering what it was to become a Christian and how it was I became a Christian and to begin this dangerous journey and all the joy I had at first believing as well as how much I needed someone to teach me and to lead me so that I could get started. Again, it never occurred to me then to try to do it on my own. Only, I have no idea what ever happened to him. But here they did. Here they were able to actually see the outcome of their lives. Uh, Very similar to what we read in chapter 11 of verse 13. These died in faith. What an encouraging testimony to the church to find not only that our teachers have taught us the pure doctrine of the word, but that they have adhered to that word to the very end. I want you to remember them. I want you to be like them. They too belong to the great cloud of witnesses, people they knew. I I would even add to this, the people we read about in history, the great Christian teachers and leaders. Sometimes uh, the people who have the most influence on you, I would certainly say this about myself, are people I never knew, but people I'm able to read about. The great preachers, remember them, he says. Is it not also true? That there is nothing that is so disastrous to the testimony of a Christian leader than that he should finish not in faith, but in sin. But those who finished in faith greatly strengthened their testimony and their teaching, and so they strengthened the church by their testimony. But do not think, he says, of their testimony without considering what it was they believed and who it was who supported them in their faith so that they were able to finish the faith. Or finish in faith. So he says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, we can't remember them without remembering him. And without remembering this. That Jesus was the rock upon which they were grounded. And the reason that rock is sure is because it is stable. It never changes, not even a little. 
He is always the same yesterday for them, today for us, and forever for all the saints. And so he was a priest to them in exactly the way uh, that it has been described throughout the book of Hebrews. He prayed for their faith that it might not fail, and so it didn't. And so they were able to finish their race in faith. That is why the outcome of their conduct was what it was. It was because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And can he not do the same for you? If he supported and strengthened their faith to the end, can he not do the same for you? The answer is yes, he can, and he will. But from this he goes on to say, in the second place, do not, verse 9, be carried about with various and strange doctrines. In other words, having just spoken of the stability of Jesus Christ and of the stability of those former Christian teachers, he's saying there is need presently in the church for stability. A stability which is found, first of all, in the presence of faithful Christian leaders, men who are themselves stable in the truth. But especially in the presence of the eternal and the abiding stability of Jesus Christ. He never changes his mind. He never alters the gospel. He never wavers in his commitment to save the elect and to offer his grace to them in the hour of need. Yes, but if we want to be stable ourselves, verse 9, and not carried about by every wind of strange doctrine, we must make our faith to rest solely upon him. And have no other foundation. There are a thousand lies, beloved, but only one truth. We must all commit ourselves fully to the truth as it is in Jesus. Otherwise, we are bound to be tossed about like the waves of the sea, as James says in James chapter 1. We will find no stability in ourselves. We will easily be deceived. We will ever live on the brink of apostasy. Without any certainty ever of getting into heaven. Yes, and he says further. The second part of verse 9, it is good that the heart be established by grace. Grace here in the most obvious sense, the grace of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the grace he offers to us and that is ever available to us, grace to help in time of need, chapter 4, verse 16. Now, this is what really grounds the Christian in a way nothing else can and what gives him certainty and assurance in believing And gives him strength equally to resist not only temptation but false teaching. Only grace as it is found in Christ is able to establish the heart. To give it stability. To ground and settle it in the truth. To make it steadfast against the the winds of various and false doctrines. And as a point of contrast to this. The stable heart established in grace. He speaks of foods. Now, surely that would seem strange if you didn't know anything about what he had been describing already in the book of Hebrews. Although, if you do, I think the point is obvious enough. Foods, no doubt, in connection with the altar, where the animals sacrificed on the altar of the Old Covenant were then eaten by the priest. The sacrifice themselves became food for the priest. A further indication that the priest, in dealing with Uh, The altar and the sacrifices there were as invested and as involved in those sacrifices as one could possibly be. They partook of the altar quite literally. As I say, they were as involved as you could possibly imagine. And so, in speaking of the foods, which do not establish the heart and grace, only 
grace does. It is an allusion then to the altar on which they sacrificed. If we have an altar, as he's about to say in verse 10, so did they, the Old Testament priest. He is describing their relationship and their place at that altar. But he says, if you look at the end of verse 9, what profit did he ever find the Old Testament priest in those sacrifices at that altar? Did he find any profit in sacrificing? Did he find any profit in eating? He found none. He didn't find any. Which leads him then to go on to say this in verse 10. We have an altar. In contrast to these priests, these old covenant priests, we too have an altar. That is to say, new covenant believers. Not found within the tabernacle of the old covenant. Not found in any sense within the bounds of the old covenant itself. But one which is outside of it. And really which is free in every sense from its constraints and its stifling and efficacy. Now this altar, he says, they have no part in the priest of the old covenant. They're unable to go there. They're unable to partake of it. They have no right to eat from this altar. Their priesthood never could bring them there. Nor would we ever be able to get there if we clung to the old forms of the old covenant and their priesthood. In fact, he says in verse 11, there was a sacrifice that even they were unable to eat, which we read about in Leviticus chapter 16. The sacrifices in connection, the sin offerings on the day of atonement. Those were taken outside the camp to be burned. And in this he tells us we have a picture of where our altar as a place of sacrifice would be found. Not within, but without. Outside the camp. There Jesus was crucified. And so his cross becomes the altar of sacrifice of the new covenant spoken of in verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Yes, and though the priests are unable to go there and meet him there, partaking of his sacrifice, constrained as they were by the old covenant, until by faith they too were able to break free, we are able to meet him there, outside the camp, at the cross. There at the cross, he tells us, and did you ever think to put it like this? We have an altar. Much as they had an altar. Only consider the kind of altar we have. An altar seen as a place of sacrifice. And on this altar, he says, we find salvation. There we go and meet with Jesus and are sanctified by his own blood. He does not seek to save us by the blood of any but his own. And to be cleansed by this blood, the blood of the very Lamb of God, is to be saved to the uttermost. That is surely the great emphasis of the book of Hebrews. And thus the third exhortation becomes verse 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp. Let us seek to meet with him there. Uh, lastly, he says, uh, bearing his reproach. Well, uh, we might easily bear the reproach of the Jews. And all who still adhere to the ceremonies of the old covenant. If only we might meet with Jesus there. In truth there isn't anything that we as Christians are not willing to suffer and endure. 
If only we might come to this place of sacrifice and enjoy its benefits and blessings. And so he says, as though to say, here is what it is to have faith. Let us go to this altar, not inside the camp of Judaism, but outside. Let us seek salvation, not the tabernacle or the altar of the tabernacle. But at the altar of sacrifice, the cross of Calvary. And there we will find something which profits truly. There we will find grace which is able to establish the heart. Verse 9. Yes, we Christians do indeed have an altar. We have not rejected, as some of the early Jews had claimed, the idea of sacrifice, the necessity of sacrifice, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Far from it. We affirm it as strongly as any man ever did. And as we come to this altar... We find it to be an altar of blessing and grace and peace and salvation. And to be occupied with this sacrifice at this altar is to find profit. For there he not only dies as a sin offering. But he sanctifies and cleanses us from all defilement. And by this same act. He consecrates the altar itself, which is to say the cross, as well as the place of offering outside the camp. Under the old covenant, as we saw in Leviticus 16, to venture out as the priest did was to become unclean. It was a place of defilement. And so he had to cleanse himself before he came back in. But under the new covenant, to venture out of the camp is the very essence of sanctification and salvation. For there, as I say, we find an altar and a sacrifice that really cleanses. And to have found this blessing outside the camp only to seek to go back in as some were doing in the early days of the church. They were trying to make the new wine of the new covenant to fit into the old wine of Judaism. Do you see why this would be a problem? To look for salvation once more in that which Christ has rendered obsolete, the old forms of the old covenant. No, he says, you have to go outside. You have to leave it once and for all. And then you have, to resi- uh, you have to reside and encamp at the foot of the cross. Add to this what he says in verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Well, here he's saying in essence that the tabernacle itself and even the holy city Jerusalem that was inside the camp was never... Or were never permanent structures, even for the Jew. God got rid of all these things. They did not last. The truth is, no one ever had a lasting city here. Not even the Jew under the old covenant. It was always impermanent and temporary. And yet, many would still seek refuge in that which does not last. Whether again, as I say, in the old forms, Judaism, under the old covenant, or perhaps simply in the vain and empty religion of secularism. But to come outside the camp and to be exposed to its many hardships for to come to Christ's cross is always to expose oneself to this sort of thing. The reproach of the world, the reproach of the Jew, the reproach of the devil. To come outside the camp and to meet Christ there and to bear his reproach is to set our hope on something better. It is to confess with the fathers that 
as was said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. They all confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. While anyone who ever met Jesus at the cross is saying the same thing. I place my hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But then coming to this altar, we notice a fourth admonition. Something you might not have expected. He says that we must bring our own sacrifices. Verses 15 and 16. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good to, uh, and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Bring your sacrifices, he says. Not as though to add to his, but rather by him to make our lives one of a continual sacrifice of praise. At this altar, God will not only require sacri- uh, God will not, excuse me, God will not require sacrifices of flesh and blood. No, not now that Christ has been sacrificed. The finality of his sacrifice rules out any possibility that I could ever add anything to his sacrifice for sin, which is to say his sin offering. No, you won't find those here. Not now, not ever. Never did God require a further sacrifice for sin. Not now that Christ has died. But that is not, let us see, to rule out all other kinds of sacrifices. Sacrifices of praise with the lips. Verse 15. Sacrifices of mercy towards our brother. Verse 16. And you see, here are the sacrifices God wants most from us. He wants lives which are consecrated to him as living sacrifices, as Paul speaks in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Equally, he wants us to be merciful to our brothers. Verse 16. For with such sacrifices, he says, God is well pleased. Do you realize what he's done when he says this? The author. He's brought us right back into the church. For there in the church, you find a place of praise and worship. Thanksgiving offered with the lips. And the church is equally where you find your brother, the one to whom you might be merciful. Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Never think to live the Christian life alone. And then to come into the church, you can say, that is the most sacred place of all. To come to the cross, this sacred altar, is to come to Mount Zion. And the many, uh, the many who are gathered there to worship him there. And so we find him saying finally in verse 17 as the fifth and final admonition. Obey those who rule over you. Having brought us again into the church. He reminds us of the leaders in the church. He is describing a spiritual authority that you find in the church among its leaders. They watch over your souls, he says. They'll have to give an account for you at the end of their journey. You see, they're pilgrims too, and don't forget it. They have to give an account not only for themselves, but for you. And so within the context of the local church, they have a kind of authority invested in them by Christ to watch over the church. You find this in the first apostles, Christ investing authority into them. And then in the elders appointed in the churches by the apostles later on in the New Testament. One thinks here of Acts chapter 20 where Paul admonishes the Ephesian elders to look carefully over uh, the church. Uh, 
over which they have been set up as elders and for whom the church for whom Christ has shed his own blood. Always think of the church in relation, he says, uh, to their great high priest in heaven and that high priestly sacrifice. Understand that you are ministering on his behalf. Only here in Hebrews chapter 13, the admonition is not to the elders or the pastors, but to the people. Much as we find 1 Thessalonians 5. And I forgot to read that, didn't I? It's a scripture reading. Well, it's the same thing you find in these verses. Obey them. Submit to them. Let them know that you recognize that they are only there by Christ's appointment to watch over you and to lead you on, to offer stability to the church by sound doctrine and so forth. They are not there to harm, but to benefit the church. Of course, we recognize that we must reject false teachers as implied in verse nine. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Well, obviously, those have a way of coming in through false teaching by false teachers, and we ought not to recognize or to, to, to submit to such men. But the faithful ones, we ought to embrace. And we ought to thank Christ for as his gifts to the church to establish and strengthen them by his grace. Ephesians chapter 4. Where such pastors and elders are found, they ought to be obeyed. They ought to be submitted to. Let the account, he says, they will one day give be a good one. And realize that the whole of their ministry is only meant to profit you. Again, in contrast to the old altar and the old ministry in which there was no profit. Verse 9. Well, here there is great profit in the church. If only you won't stand in the way. If only you will allow it to happen. Think of how much you discourage the pastor when you resist him. And when you make his work a burden rather than a joy, Calvin warns that those who do such things ought to expect no benefit from his ministry. No, it really ought not to be like this. Not if together we are seeking the city which lasts and which has foundations and whose builder and maker is God. Let us encourage the minister and the elders in their labors. So that they might do good unto the church to the best of their ability. And then everybody profits. Nobody profits from a minister too discouraged to do his work. Calvin, we cannot be troublesome or disobedient to our pastors without hazarding our own salvation. I wonder, beloved, whether we really believe that. Well, we ought to believe it. Because that's what God's word tells us to believe. It teaches us to seek salvation nowhere else but at this altar. And there you will find Jesus, it is true. But you will also find a great deal many other things. Among them, you will find Christian leaders, pastors and elders. And we ought to regard them as part of his work. And one of the many ways in which he blesses the church and establishes us in his grace. And regarding them as such, as blessings... We ought to let them do their work with joy and not with not with grief, lest they become too discouraged to do it at all. Amen. And let us now come to the table.